evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Complaints about the inaccurate and incomplete history taught in schools as it relates to race in this country have been made for decades. However, with the 2019 release of the 1619 Project, developed by journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and published by the New York Times, not only were such discussions reignited, but material from the project facilitated the accurate discussion of this nation's history, especially as it relates to race. Many conservatives sought to undermine the project and push for a more patriotic discussion about the history of this country. More than a year after the 1619 project was released and right before the 2020 election, Trump established the 1776 Commission to facilitate the development of nationalist patriotic education curriculum. We should note that Nicole Hannah-Jones was hired by UNC Chapel Hill in April of this year to be the night chair in race and investigative journalism at the UNC School of Journalism. Despite having won the Pulitzer Prize, a Peabody Award, and receiving a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant for her journalism, Hannah Jones was essentially denied tenure by the UNC Board of Trustees because of pressure from conservatives who take issue with the 1619 Project. Republicans have not only widely criticized the 1619 Project, but there have been recent efforts to undermine critical race theory and prevent the full exploration in schools of the lasting impact of this nation's racist past and present. In recent months, several Republican-controlled state legislatures, including North Carolina, have introduced bills to restrict how America's racial history is taught in schools. And a number of these states have passed measures, including Idaho, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Tonight, we're gonna to talk about the need for discussions about race, critical race theory, and the Republicans' attack on CRT. We have joining us this evening for our discussion, Erica Wilson. She is a professor of law at UNC School of Law. And Professor Wilson teaches critical race theory, education law, and is the director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic. Also joining us is Greg Meyer, who is a North Carolina state representative. Representative Meyer represents House District 50, which serves constituents in Orange and Caswell counties. He is also the co-founder and principal consultant for the Equity Collaborative, an organization that trains educators on inequity and social justice. Thank you both very much for taking your time and joining us this evening. I'd like to first ask each of you to share a little bit about yourself, about your background, 
and how you became interested in race issues generally and critical race theory or CRT specifically. And Professor Wilson, we'll start with you. Thank you uh, for having me. Um, so I, uh, again, am a professor at UNC, the UNC School of Law, uh, and I became interested in issues of race in the law beginning in law school, really. I went to the UCLA School of Law for law school. And so I was at UCLA at an interesting time um, when ideas of colorblindness uh, were particularly rampant, I would say in the early 2000s. And I entered UCLA right at the time that California had passed uh, Proposition 209, which banned the use of race conscious admissions. So as a result of that, I was, um, one of four black students in a law school class of 320. Um, and so I was living uh, the reality of what a so-called colorblind approach to uh, law and policy would look like. And so it just so happened at that time, UCLA had also started, the law school had also started um, a critical race studies program. And so I had an opportunity to take constitutional law, for example, with Professor Cheryl Harris, uh, a, a notable uh, CRT um, person. Uh, and so being in that uh, lived experience of, uh, of being one of the only a handful of black law students in law school and having to study the law under that, in that context, but also having the opportunity to be introduced to critical race studies uh, really helped me to understand why um, what I was seeing, I was seeing in terms of limited uh, participation or um, equality for, for black people, black students, especially in terms of UCLA. And so that is actually for me, what sparked my interest in, in studying more, learning more about the connections between race and the law uh, and getting more involved in critical race theory. Thank you for that. Uh, Representative Meyer, your background. My connection starts with the personal in that um, I grew up in the inner city in Cleveland, Ohio. And when I got to college, I, I uh, learned that sociology existed, didn't know what it was before I got to college. And it was useful to me because I was trying to figure out how come I was the only one of my friends who was in college. Everybody else was still in Cleveland. And sociology helped me understand the role that being um, white and the role that of having college educated parents in particular played in, in me getting those opportunities. And then I went uh, to become a social worker and to work in education because I wanted to provide college access opportunities for students like I had. And uh, I, I worked in a college, ran a college access program for a long time and got tired of helping individual kids navigate a broken system and wanted to figure out how do you change the system. And so started working on equity advocacy uh, because I wanted to change the system for all the kids, not just the ones that I had in my program. And simultaneously, my oldest child is adopted and she's black. And then I have two biological sons who are white and seeing the different experiences of those kids in school and particularly the way that my daughter internalized um, a sense of inferiority and came to believe explicitly came to believe by the time she was in middle school that white skin meant that you were smarter and came home one day and said, dad, how come white people are smarter than black people? And it wasn't okay for me to have my child to believe that. And, and I also worried, well, if she came to believe that in middle school and my white sons come to believe that same thing because they're in the same schools, 
then how will they interpret their sister and how will they explain the fact that now she has a master's degree and you know i don't want them to believe that the only reason why she would be uh breaking the norms of race and intelligence um is because she was adopted by white parents because that would simply reinforce fault false white superiority in my sons and so all that leads me to my curiosity and my interest with crt because crt has this wonderful tenet called interest convergence and i realized that in my own life i was an example of the way that my exposure as a white person to the way that working alongside of people of color uh, and working for people of color actually made me more interested in overall justice and change and it was good for my own family as well. And I started to think about, well, if we really want to create more equitable societies, how do we make it clear to white people that they benefit from this as well? All right, thank you both. Um, yeah, intriguing backgrounds. Uh, and it, it, I think it reinforces that, um, Professor Wilson, as you noted, specifically your lived experience and Representative Meyer, as you shared, that our um, interactions uh, in society plays a big role in how it is that we approach race in this country um, and, and specifically critical race theory. And so this term has been bandied about a lot in recent months. Uh, I remember, you know, a year ago, um, Professor Wilson, we actually had you on the show not too long ago where we were talking about your clinic. And it, this was not a term that was um, used by, you know, the, the masses. It was absolutely used within the academic circles, but it's a term that we're seeing is used over and over, oftentimes misused. So let's start with providing a definition of what CRT is and how it came to be. Sure. Um, so it's definitely true that the common or recent public use of critical race theory uh, is being used as a dog whistle, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it really is. It's important to understand that critical race theory is not diversity training or any kind of anti-white indoctrination as has been represented. Instead, CRT is an analytical tool. It's a framework, uh, right? It's an analytical tool framework uh, through which we can analyze and understand legal and non-legal problems related to race inequality and power. Uh, for us on the legal side, just as law and economics is a framework, critical race theory is, is a framework. And the work that the framework does is that it acknowledges the uh, constitutive connection between race or membership in any traditionally subordinated group and the law uh, in particular. Um, it's a really important framework for helping us to challenge and understand the ways race and power are constructed by law, uh, especially. Um, and I think it's really important now because there is the sort of a dominant line of thought that uh, we had a Civil Rights Act, we had Martin Luther King and all of the so-called bad deeds of the past are washed away by that. Um, and so because we now have uh, ostensible equal protections under the law, uh, people assume that there is no longer a problem uh, of racism uh, or racial, or, or that even worse, any racial inequality that we see is the product of individual choices uh, and, the re and, and the fault of individuals rather than a societal or, or structural 
problem, as Representative Meyer alluded to. And so um, it's critical to understand that what CRT does as a framework is help pushes us to think beyond uh, what we've normally been taught about the reason our society looks the way it does, the uh, racial ordering uh, that exists. Uh, I think that's probably the most important thing that it does is it uh, upfront acknowledges that there is a racial ordering. I like to say if an alien were to, to land on planet Earth um, and land in the United States of America, they would undoubtedly see a particular racial ordering. Um, and CRT gives us the uh, language uh, and the lenses to understand why that racial ordering exists. And if we are willing to take heat and pay attention to it, uh, it also gives us the lenses and frames to understand how we can reconstruct it uh, so that we have a more racially equitable, more equitable society for all. Well, let me just ask, you know, it, you know with that, uh, that definition and that clarification, can, can you talk about the difference between critical race theory, critical race studies, and uh, racial history? Are they the same? or a component of the same? So I think uh, racial history is a is intertwined in terms of the frames or lenses. Um, they are uh, connected in some ways is the best way, way to say it. Uh, so we have this um, racial history, undoubtedly, uh, beginning with the enslavement of Africans, uh, moving through uh, not just uh, Africans, but other uh, races as well. The Chinese Exclusion Act, for example, uh, the genocide of Native Americans. Uh, you can go on in terms of uh, the, the racist racial history that has happened. What critical race theory does is it gives us the language and tools to explain that history. Uh, and I think most importantly, explain the ways in which that history continues to plague us uh, today and impact the things that we see today. And so that I think is the largest point of departure for CRT critics um, who uh, in most uh, ways would like us to believe that uh, that part is the past and we need to let it go, uh, that we in America have a story of uh, upward trajectory uh, that yes, we had uh, some bumps in the road in terms of the way certain groups were treated, uh, but that is not a, an integral part of who we are as a country uh, and that uh, its relevance is minimal. Uh, whereas CRT would suggest that uh, race and racism are a central organizing feature of the way that our society is currently ordered. Um, so I think that's at the heart actually of the debate about why uh, individuals want to ban uh, what they're erroneously in many instances calling CRT. Um, but yes, I'll, I'll put it that way. Okay, well, uh, Representative Mai, let me just kind of follow up uh, from uh, Professor Wilson's uh, comments as it relates to racial ordering, uh, which you seem to acknowledge when you talk about the uh, learning pattern that your daughter uh, had uh, been subjected to when she was in school. Uh, how how did that uh, how did that how was that created uh, in her mind? And then how did you 
address that in, to, in, in terms of demystifying or deconstructing uh, this notion of racial ordering? I mean, in my mind, the fundamental lie of the United States is that white people are inherently more intelligent than black people, and that that is at the core of all of our racial ordering. And um, the word you use, demystify, I think is, is the right way to think about that. Like that, that's false. Like we know biologically it's false and we know that socially it's false. And so you have to demystify it. In order to do that, you have to address it. You have to talk about it, name it uh, to the point Professor Wilson was making by history. You have to teach the history and the counter narrative, the ways that you have examples that show that it's not true. And so with whether it's with my daughter or with you know any of the schools that we work with in, in my consulting work, um, it's about being explicit with uh, children about both the peril and the promise of US history. We're, in no way should we avoid teaching the ways in which the United States has failed to live up to its ideals, the same as we should continue to teach the ways in which we have uh, met those ideals and the people who have taken tremendous risks in their lives and careers in order to get us there. And that's how you learn to be American in a pluralistic society and not one that maintains the same hierarchy that Professor Wilson was talking about. And so to those who would say, uh, why is not teaching racial, racial history not enough? Like. Like and Professor Wilson, you've talked about the the language and the lens that CRT provides, uh, but there are those that would argue that you know discussing the history is sufficient enough to demystify these issues of race. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we want to continue to explore this, and we'll have both of you kind of respond to. Um, the criticism and respond to the argument that uh, the history that is currently being taught is sufficient and explain why that is in fact not the case. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM and Professor Herb Joyner and I have been talking with Erica Wilson who is a professor of law at UNC School of Law and also the director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic, and also Greg Meyer, who is the North Carolina or a North Carolina State Representative for District 50. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WACU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking with Greg Meyer, who is a North Carolina State Representative for the House District 50, and Professor Erica Wilson, who is a professor of law at UNC School of Law. And this hour, we are talking about critical race theory, discussions of race, we're talking about the um, challenges that have been made by many Republicans, um, demonizing, if you will, critical race theory. And we're talking about what it is, what uh, it means, and why it's important. So right before the break, uh, we were talking about the argument that some are making. Um, Professor Wilson, you distinguished the difference between uh, racial history or critical race studies and critical race theory. And there are those that argue that uh, what is currently taught in, in schools, and we're talking about um, you know, elementary schools, primary schools, high schools, is sufficient and that there doesn't need to be this additional discussion that falls under the umbrella of critical race theory. Um, I, I'd like to actually start first with is what is being taught, separate and apart from uh, looking at our current systems through the lens of critical race theory, are our students, our young people, currently being taught an accurate and complete history of race in this country, in the first instance, before we even get to CRT? And Representative Meyer, let's start with you. Yeah. We know that they're not, and that the North Carolina State Board of Education updated our social studies standards earlier this year to set standards that would teach a more inclusive history and have more representation of the experiences of people who have been marginalized or oppressed as part of our social studies curriculum. And that decision by the State Board of Education was really what set off the backlash here in North Carolina. But it is about so much more than just how we teach history because teaching the history helps us with understanding where we've come from and where we need to go, but teaching history itself doesn't change policy. And that's the battle that they're playing for. Their, their bastardization of, of CRT isn't about critical race theory itself. It's about them enacting cancel culture into policy where they want to limit what others say, not because they're against CRT, but because they're against equality. And you'll hear them say, now they're starting to say that the equity is an anti-equality policy, which it's not. Equity is a pathway to getting to equality, but they need to find a way to seem like pro-equality when actually anti-equality, because it's very difficult to be anti-equality in the United States. We're kind of fundamentally based on trying to live up to the ideal of equality, but this anti-CRT mess is a way for them to be anti-equality because they want to keep the status quo and the status quo is inherently unequal. And when we're advocating for change, whether it's in teaching history or in policies here in the state house, we are trying to create a more equal society, one that lives up to our ideals. And if you're fighting against us and we're doing that in an anti-racist way, if you're anti-anti-racism, then what are you? Yeah, I would just add to that. I mean, the original question was whether or not students are being taught, uh, what they're being taught is adequate. So. As a law professor, um, I get students uh, at the graduate level, obviously, and so the very first time I taught critical race theory uh, as an elective seminar in the law school, 
I had a few native North Carolinians tell me that they were taught that the Civil War was the war of Northern aggression. Um, and so there are already, um, it's a, a misnomer to suggest that uh, the, the history that's being taught is neutral. That's the first thing. Uh, there's already a slant in, uh, in many jurisdictions in terms of how the bare facts are taught. Um, and the other part of it is, uh, as Representative Meyer alluded to, there's not a fulsome uh, history being taught. At best, uh, much of the curriculum teaches that uh, uh, enslavement happened, uh, it was over, uh, Maybe some of it gets into the bare bones of Jim Crow, but it doesn't really adequately um, describe or even give students a full picture of the horrors uh, of enslavement. And beyond that, uh, much of our history also that's taught uh, in schools uh, occurs along a black-white binary. Uh, but there's a lot of real estate in between that's missed. A lot of my law students had never heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act, for example. Um, some were one, unaware of the internment of Japanese. Um, others were, uh, until reading uh, the Johnson case in first year property, were unaware uh, that the law sanctioned uh, what we call manifest destiny, this idea that uh, white Christians were entitled uh, to this land. And so I just say all that to say that um, it shouldn't be the case that our, that my students are getting to law school before they hear of these very critical parts of history. So taking aside the question of whether or not we should be teaching uh, what's called critical race theory in K through 12, I don't even think the proposals that exist would actually teach critical race theory in, in K through 12. It would more add a fulsome uh, explanation of, of, of history. Um, but the bottom line is that we can't, um, know where we want to go uh, if we don't completely know where we've been. And so from what I've seen, uh, it's not clear to me that the curriculum that currently exists uh, in North Carolina, uh, probably nationally, I'll venture a guess, is adequate to fully explain um, what our history was. And I think it's really important to keep that keep in mind that many people are not going to get an education beyond K through 12. So to the extent there are these huge gaps in K through 12 education, uh, that's the ball game right there. We're producing citizens uh, who don't have a fulsome his understanding of our history. And I think Professor Meyer is right. I mean, that is part of the, uh, that is the point. Um, without that fulsome understanding of our history, one might conclude that the current uh, distribution of resources, et cetera, is natural or inevitable, when instead it's socially constructed, very much related to our history. And sometimes it's not even the gaps, it's that the, it's the misinformation that's taught in school. There was a book that was popularized in the equity movement maybe 10 or 15 years ago called Lies My Teacher Told Me that debunked the current social studies curriculum and tried to correct some of it. And I think that the 1619 Project is exactly an, uh, an example of that, of saying like it, it's like what you've learned has inaccuracies in it. The common stories we've been told are stories. Let's retell the story. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a recent uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, dealing with the imposition of the uh, death penalty out in uh, Oklahoma, uh, where... Uh, uh, Associate Justice Garus, uh, writing for the court, uh, determined that uh, the uh, conviction 
of the uh, defendant in that case had to be overturned because the uh, state of Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction uh, because the uh, a crime that was the focus of the uh, decision occurred on Indian land. And because it occurred on Indian land, then the state of Oklahoma did not have uh, jurisdiction to uh, uh, prosecute uh, this uh, defendant sent shockwaves uh, through people uh, in uh, in Oklahoma, uh, where now uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, declared uh, basically that a large portion of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, is really the uh, uh, in the possession or should be in the possession of the uh, native uh, indigenous uh, uh, people that's uh, that's there. Um, which, and I raise that as, as a danger of not knowing and understanding the history and the kind of impact it can have long term. But I uh, hasten uh, to note that uh, uh, Professor Dawson in her uh, introduction indicated that Oklahoma was one of the states that has uh, in adopted uh, this anti-CRT uh, legislation and North Carolina is now heading in the same uh, direction with all of the racial ills that have uh, that have occurred here in this uh, in the in the state how 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 do we address these efforts in light of glaring factual contradictions uh, as to what uh, these uh, these efforts entail I mean it, it, we have to address it the way we have had to address so many misinformation efforts in the United States over the course of our history, right? This isn't a contemporary political issue. So there is an element of educating folks, as you're doing with this show, of helping them understand what is actually CRT. But what's more important, I think, is helping them understand what's happening here, which this is another effort to divide people, white, black, and brown, uh, by putting divisive language in front of us and using fancy terms no offense, Professor Wilson, I like critical race theory, but that's how they're using it. They're like, look at this fancy term that y'all can't understand and it should make you scared. And they try to drive up fear to drive us apart. And we have to communicate to people that we know, we all know people of many classes and many races know the way this division game has been run before and it's always to our detriment. And we don't need to be on defense here we need to be on offense. We are working towards building a better America, one that uses a more uh, race conscious lens to try and get closer to our goals of equality. And if you're with us, then don't fall for this whole line of, of mess that they're talking about related to CRT. Yeah, I would just add to that. I mean, I think um, the education piece is, is huge. I mean, it is really important uh, that we debunk the, the misconceptions um, and from a framing perspective I think it's really important to um, make sure that this is not situated as a zero-sum game uh, issue where this in, in some ways teaching a more wholesome history um, some might feel harms uh, whites or makes it makes them out to be the bad guy the truth is we're all hurt uh, by our democracy is actually significantly harmed by not uh, having our citizens not understand the full breadth of where, where we've been um, so for listeners out there who um, want to read something new I highly recommend a book called by Heather McGee called the sum of all of us 
and she does a great job of, of framing um, these issues to make it clear that uh, this, these are issues that impact all of us. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, and particularly for uh, white citizens, I would say. I think there's a lot of uh, political gamesmanship uh, going on to make white citizens in, in particular feel like uh, they are losing something uh, and that uh, people of color are taking something from them. Uh, and that's a false binary that's used to actually harm all of us. Uh, it's really critical that we not fall for the head fake, as they say in basketball, and realize that um, we're better collectively and uh, applying a more race-conscious lens to, to our history does not mean that we are trying to harm white citizens. It means that we're trying to create a more egalitarian and equal citizen for all, for, for all. I mean, uh, part of critical race uh, theory also examines uh, the ideas of whiteness and the ways in which um, elite groups of whites are created to the detriment of others. So this is all really important for all of us to learn and understand. And it is possible to help white folks think about easily that like your life is better when you have non-white people in it. You got friends, you like going to Mexican restaurants, like there's all these things you do where you cross boundaries and it makes your life better. And, you know, Professor Wilson started out by talking about how, about the myth of colorblindness and her experience in education. And one thing we just have to help white people understand is there's no reason to be colorblind if you see color as an asset. If the, if the people that you're connecting with across difference are people that bring value to your life, you don't have to pretend like race doesn't matter. You just have to listen to them and believe them and support them, be friends with them, and then you can enjoy them. And, and that's the type of America that I think most folks, including a lot of conservative white folks, want to live in. And we have to, we have to help them understand that, that they shouldn't fall for this. So is it possible for us to get to a truly equal society without looking at our present systems and our present circumstances through a race conscious lens? I mean, I would say absolutely not. I mean, part of the problem of failing to incorporate a more race conscious lens is I keep, I can't reiterate this enough. Um, without a race conscious lens, we look at current racial disparities and we presume that these are failings of individual groups, pathologies of individual groups. If only you would stop buying Air Jordans and save your money, um, then you could live in a nice neighborhood and go to a nice school. But this is uh, patently false uh, work of individuals like Professor Sandy Darity does a good job of really clearly articulating the ways in which our history uh, impacts our present in terms of resource distribution. And so without um, applying that critical lens, what we tend to happen is we, what happen is we individualize problems um, and make it seem like uh, there are individual solutions uh, to systemic problems, which is just not true. You can save your money uh, every dime you make and will never fix the racial wealth gap. Uh, a pair of Jordans isn't going to make a difference uh, in the grand scheme of things. So. Um, the big part of this is an ideological uh, battle, I think. Uh, a lot of the opposition to CRT, again, as Professor Meyer alluded to, is about um, trying to stifle notions of equality, uh, making individuals uh, 
believe that the current ordering is natural, inevitable, and okay, uh, and that doing anything else is, is robbing uh, individuals, robbing white citizens in particular. And again, the only way to break out of that, um, that box, uh, that narrative box, is to apply a more race-conscious lens so that we understand. All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We've been talking this hour about discussions of race, specifically critical race theory. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Representative Greg Meyer, who represents House District 50 here in North Carolina, and also Professor Erica Wilson, who is a professor of law at UNC School of Law. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this discussion about uh, critical race theory and the uh, perversion of that uh, concept uh, that uh, we are encountering uh, throughout our system uh, right now. I would guess uh, uh, Representative uh, Greg Meyer uh, who is the uh, representative for House District 50, uh, which is Orange and uh, Caswell County, and uh, Professor uh, Erica Wilson, who is professor of law at the uh, UNC School of Law, and is the director of the Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic uh, at that uh, at that school. Uh, is, this is a new uh, program uh, that uh, is kind of uh, leading the way in uh, legal education, uh, seeking to prepare uh, budding lawyers to uh, address uh, this uh, issue of uh, critical race learning and critical race uh, education uh, throughout the uh, legal uh, system. Let me just start us off, uh, and and I want to kind of focus on motivation and impact. just what is the motivation for these attacks on CRT as a uh, learning uh, platform, uh, on the hiring of uh, uh, Nicole uh, uh, Hannah-Jones, uh, the uh, efforts to uh, undermine uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, 
of uh, discussions in our school system. What, what is the motivation for that and what impact is it having on our people? Yeah, I, in the political realm, I think there's a clear political intention here that um, right now progressive policies are so popular with the American people and President Biden's aggressive agenda that has a strong equity focus to it is going over so well with people. Uh, and we have Vice President Kamala Harris in the White House that it, there should be no surprise that the Republicans turn back to their old divide and conquer playbook and that this is just their newest way and their newest set of terms to be able to scare people and to, uh, to make them feel like you should worry that the Democrats are gonna take from you and give to someone else. And uh, when really we're in a period where we have the opportunity to build a different approach that doesn't have to be based on a zero sum game that we can build a, a more equitable society where everyone has a chance to come out ahead. In fact, the people who are most likely to uh, to be heard from it is is not working class white people. They're gonna they're gonna get some equity too. Uh, they're people who are um, the largest of the large wealth holders may have to give up some of their wealth, but you know what? They're gonna be okay. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I would also say it's a distraction in some ways. I mean turning all of the heat on to uh, what they're calling CRT distracts away from the fact that we don't have a living wage in many places, uh, that people are facing eviction. Um, so making this the political hot button issue takes some of the steam out of other progressive uh, causes that we might be putting our attention to, to fixing our healthcare system. This is a uh, um, I have to give it to uh, the conservatives who push this play, but it's a brilliant way, uh, frankly, given our racial history, to deflect away from policies that could bring us closer to uh, equity for all and to maintain a, um, a system that only that advantages the 1% and disadvantages a lot of other folks. Yeah, and both of you have mentioned, you know, this this playbook, which, you know, we've seen this before. Anytime we have progress, specifically if we're talking about progress as it relates to race. So if you think about the Civil War and Reconstruction, and then we've got, you know, the response to that, and we've got, you know, Jim Crow, and then when we have, um, you know, Brown v. v. Board of Education, we've got the entrenchment of uh, school systems in the South in particular, but not exclusively. Um, and then when we have the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, like every time there are gains that we make, there is this response to try and undo those gains. So this is of no surprise that we're here um, at this moment. And so, and both of you have kind of alluded to this, but for us to flesh it out a little bit more, we know what the political goals are and why this is happening from a political standpoint is this working? Are people in the community, uh, is the general public, those that are inclined to believe that CRT is uh, part of a nefarious approach by progressives, is that working? I mean, I think, and you ask if it's working, uh, I think it depends on uh, the sector of individuals that you're talking about. I mean, it is working to the extent that uh, on our in our national media, right, right, we're talking about this and not talking about a living wage um, anymore. We are 
um, it is working uh, to the extent that uh, it stops uh, our elected officials from having to answer uh, real pressing problems about why certain things aren't being done. Um, and in many ways, I think it is an effective way to give people, this messaging gives people on the ground uh, a framework uh, to rely on uh, when they are articulating why they are against more equitable distribution of resources. So I think for some it is, for some sectors of people it is working. Uh, the flip side of that is for, for others, it makes them more curious about what is the CRT and it actually may help to push some people uh, to learn for themselves what it's really about. I hope that I hope that you're right, Professor Wilson. I hope they overplay their hand. I hope that they push this so much that it makes people be like, no, wait, we actually understand that things aren't the way they should be. And these seem like people who are trying to make them better and you know, people can pick a side. But in the meantime, I do think it's being very effective in terms of organizing the conservative base and mobilizing them prior to the 2022 elections. Um, I know here in North Carolina that our uh, state superintendent of public instruction who's a Republican and is trying to play both sides of the fence on this issue says that she's pro-equity but anti-CRT. She headlined a rally that a conservative group had to try and recruit um, Latinx folks from countries that had uh, dictator or strongman leaders to convince them that they shouldn't be Democrats when they come to the United States because we use this all this stuff and that it makes us Marxist or whatever. Like. That's absurd. You're just lying to people. Um, but it's effective. They're using it to organize people. And, and one of the school districts I work with had a three-hour uh, school board meeting where, because 14 churches organized to come and tell that school district that they shouldn't teach critical race theory in schools, which they weren't even doing. But somehow they were able to get a couple hundred people to a school board meeting in a rural place in the mountains. Yeah, yeah and, we, and we find the same thing uh, right here in uh, Alamance County, where the school board uh, has been under attack uh, for uh, a, a, an article in the uh, uh, the uh, high school uh, uh, journal uh, about Black Lives uh, and uh, yearbook about Black Lives Matter, and uh, it is a uh, useless uh, conflict. Uh, that has uh, been played uh, has been played out. Uh, how do we attack though? I mean, I'm, 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 I understand we have to raise the issue uh, and that we have to do it in some uh, unified manner. But uh, who is at the head of this engine that we need to confront to undermine this uh, uh, attempt to? really to deny the democracy that we seek to develop here in this country. I mean, I think that's part of the problem. You asked who is at the head of this engine. Uh, it's more of a, a, a decentralized, I would say, uh, effort uh, that is can be quite effective. I mean, how do we counter this is, is the million dollar question. I think one of the things that drives me crazy um, and you alluded to it, is the idea that critical race theory is even being taught in schools is patently false. I mean, it's not. I mean, they are, for, for the most part, many of these efforts are not trying to teach CRT. They're just trying to teach the fulsome history. Um, so how do we combat it? I think one of the ways that we combat it is to reject this framing. 
this is not a question of whether or not to keep CRT in, in schools because it's not being taught in most instances. The framing needs to be, do we want a complete accounting of our history and divorce it away from this idea that uh, CRT is being taught in K through 12 because it does really do disservice to uh, scholars who have long uh, toiled to develop this body uh, of literature because it's not an accurate uh, accounting or description of their work and what CRT is about. And I think we make it too easy and give uh, those who are inclined to fight uh, equity and equality an easy punching bag by lumping everything under CRT that's not CRT. So one of the things that those of us opposed to this have to do is to be very careful about our language and to not uh, argue this on their terms. We have to refuse to engage on terms of whether or not CRT should be uh, taught in the classroom because that's not really what this battle is about. And just, I, I think all that is exactly right. And remember that we're on offense here. We're not on defense just because they're attacking us on this. They wouldn't be attacking us if we hadn't made significant progress on addressing uh, r racial equity in schools over the last 10 to 20 years. And that's why they're coming after us. So let's keep on that progress and let's keep fighting for the things we've been fighting for before they came and, and started talking about this. We knew we were in for a fight because as April said earlier, like this is the way that pushback always comes. And so now we got you know, we got to take a punch, but we're in a fight and we'll come back out with our, with our continued efforts to build inclusive schools. And, you know, um, Representative Meyer, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the word, the phrase, right? Critical race theory. And if you've never heard it before or never studied it before, it can sound like a very intimidating term. As we change the narrative uh, and we continue to stay on the offensive and we, as Professor Wilson said, you know, reframe or reject the current framing and, and reframe it, should we avoid, um, I don't want to say avoid using CRT, uh, but how do we shift, how do we effectively shift the discussion away from this term that most people in the public probably don't fully understand and, and make sure that we are able to shift. And Professor, uh, Professor Meyer, we, we have, um, you know, you're very much like a professor. Uh, Representative Meyer, uh, I really appreciated your perspective about how do we talk to um, particularly white folk about what type of society do you really want to live in and how do we get there? Uh, do you have any suggestions, and this is to both of you, any suggestions about how we engage in those discussions more? I think Professor Wilson earlier recommended a book from Heather McGee, which I think is an outstanding book. And she, when she was at DEMO, she led some work on um, a framing project called Race Class Narrative that I recommend that people look up if you want to know how should we be talking about this, where it basically says we have to remind people that no matter what you look like, black, white, or brown, no matter what your class is, rich or poor, no matter what country you come from, people who are in the United States want to build a place where everyone has the chance to thrive. And conservative forces are using this language to divide us when we are trying to work on becoming a better United States. We have plenty of good framing on the better parts of America to win by. Let's stick with those and, and we don't, I love CRT, I love it. It's a useful frame to see the world, but as a political 
uh, language. We have so many things that people are more comfortable talking about than CRT. Professor Wilson and I will go to lunch, we'll talk about CRT all day long. But when you're talking to the average voter, we just got to keep it on. We're trying to work towards a better America. Yeah, I would also add to that. One thing that we can take from CRT is this idea of uh, injecting counter narratives um, and, and some storytelling. I think that is often a very effective way of framing things to actually tell the stories of of real people, uh, while the right uh, or whoever else is inclined to do so uh, is talking about um, esoteric uh, framing, et cetera, we need to tell the real stories of real people on the ground and what they're going through um, and how we can make it better for those folks. I think that's how we combat this and this, that's how we connect with the everyday person who doesn't uh, understand what CRT is and probably frankly won't care uh, if you frame uh, the stories correctly to get at the heart of the issues that people do care about, a living wage, housing, health care, et cetera. Which seems to be something that we are all intimately aware of coming out of this uh, this pandemic when a lot of these uh, this disparities that exist uh, within our society was uh, were uh, laid bare uh, for everyone to see and uh, and experience, uh, and we still, for some reason, uh, don't uh, direct our time and energy toward addressing uh, those underlying and real ills that people are confronted with uh, every day. Uh, our legislature needs to uh, to lead us, uh, Representative Myers. Uh, when are they going to do that? <laughs> we. we, we certainly need a legislature that is ready to lead us on these things. And so we have just a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask both of you, um, in terms of the really important work that you're doing, can you share uh, where you are in, in your work and just share to our listening audience or with our listening audience um, some of the, the work that you have coming up? Uh, Professor Wilson, let's start with you. Sure. So I actually uh, just published a law review article uh, called Monopolizing Whiteness that actually talks about the uh, some of the issues of um, resource hoarding when it comes to schools and race. So I would highly uh, recommend that uh, in terms of reading it and changing the conversation. The other thing that I've been doing is work with my clinic. Uh, we are actually representing clients, I have one particular client, uh, and trying to fight against um, this idea of using or of restricting speech uh, to try and not talk about issues of race and racism. Uh, we're also representing clients who are facing uh, racial discrimination in schools uh, and who are affected by collateral consequences. Um, so my clinic represents real live clients uh, in pressing legal issues, and so if you uh, need legal assistance on issues of race, uh, discrimination, that sort of thing, uh, please look up my clinic, uh, and we may be able to help. Here at the legislature, I'm working hard to try and push for us to capitalize on the, the American Rescue Plan, American Jobs Plan opportunities that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris have made possible for us. And Governor Cooper has made some proposals that really have a strong equity focus where, where he says, let's use this federal money that we're getting to try and help the target the communities that have been 
the hardest hit by COVID and the farthest behind in our economy for generations. And that includes communities of color as well as um, rural communities that have white folks and people of color in them that need a, a step up. And so that's really the core of our battle this year is around what do we do with that money and who is it we're trying to help. Excellent, excellent. Uh, thank you both. And I think we have like maybe a minute left and uh, Professor Joyner Irv, you teach race and the law. Um, final thoughts about what you are doing with your students and just final impressions that you have um, following this discussion. Well, like uh, Professor Wilson, uh, we want to uh, expose our students uh, to uh, what this uh, real world view is and how race has uh, captured uh, the law and how the law has impacted negatively uh, racial uh, growth and development here in this country. So we're going to continue to do that as we emerge from this pandemic. All right. Well, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Erica Wilson, Professor of Law at UNC School of Law. Professor Wilson teaches critical race theory, education law, and she is the director of the recently established Critical Race Lawyering Civil Rights Clinic. We'd also like to thank Greg Meyer, who is a North Carolina state representative. He represents the House District 50, which serves Orange and Caswell County. He is also the founder and principal consultant with the Equity Collaborative, which is an organization that trains educators on inequity and social justice. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.